Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I'm Mark Honigsbaum. And I'm Hannah Maudsley. We're the Disease Detectives, and in this series of Going Viral, we're investigating the world's deadliest virus, the 1918 Spanish influenza. Which is 100 years old this year, 2018. In the last episode, we talked to Professor John Oxford about his theory that the Spanish flu pandemic started in northern France. At a Tapla, we've got everything you need to allow the emergence of a new pandemic. So we use that as a strong background to our hypothesis that it started not in Spain, not in the United States, not in China, but here in Europe on the Western Front. But the American historian Alfred Crosby called it America's forgotten pandemic. And another American writer, John Barry, has suggested the pandemic started in Kansas. So today we're going to investigate this American theory. For Wells, one of the leading pathologists in the world, to do an autopsy and look at the lung tissue and think initially that it may be a new disease, that is not a death caused by bacterial pneumonia. And also another wildcard theory that it originated in China. This time when doctors go and they investigate the outbreak of pneumonic plague, they immediately say this isn't pneumonic plague, it's actually Spanish influenza. Episode 4, Some New Kind of Plague. So it's almost as though the American and British experts are competing with each other to own the pandemic. Yes, and I think that one reason why this idea of America's forgotten pandemic has such purchase in the public mind is because of an iconic image that you see reproduced in virtually every book and story on the flu. Um, I'm looking at John Barry's book, The Great Influenza, and if you open it up uh, in the centre pages, across two of those pages, you've got this iconic image of all these men, these American soldiers, these young farm boys, doughboys as they were known, lying on makeshift cots uh, in this hangar-like space. Some of them have got masks on, some of them have got gowns. They look like they've just had an illness of some kind. We know it was taken at Camp Funston in Fort Riley, Kansas, sometime in 1918. We don't know the exact date. But the caption reads, emergency hospital during influenza epidemic. Retrospectively, it's clearly been associated with Spanish flu. And I think that's one reason it's often presented as Exhibit 1, for the case for an American origin. And I think it also explains the association of the pandemic with America in the public mind. Camp Funston was one of 40 large training camps virtually erected overnight by the US when it entered the war in April 1917. And at the height of its operations, it housed 55,000 soldiers. Another big one was Camp Devens in Massachusetts. And these camps were basically massive immunological experiments. Never before had so many men from so many different walks of life been crowded into barracks and forced to live in such close proximity. They were cities that were built on the spot. So these environments were crowded. Any virus or any bacterium that was capable of human spread would get in there and would infect and kill a lot of people. In previous conflicts, the US Army had lost scores of men to disease, so they already knew that camps were breeding grounds for bacteria and viruses. But in 1918, their principal concern was pneumonia and measles, not flu. So when in September 1918, the epidemic broke out at Camp Devens, Massachusetts, they were taken completely by surprise. 
One of the most horrifying descriptions comes from Roy Grist, a Scottish surgeon. Now, he wrote the letter in 1918, but it only saw the light of day in 1979 when someone discovered it in a trunk and sent it to the British Medical Journal. So he wrote, These men start with what appears to be an ordinary attack of la grippe or influenza, and when brought to the hospital, they very rapidly develop the most vicious type of pneumonia that has ever been seen. Two hours after admission, they have the mahogany spots over the cheekbones, and a few hours later, you can begin to see the cyanosis extending from the ears and spreading all over the face. It is only a matter of a few hours then until death comes, and it is simply a struggle for air until they suffocate. So by September, the base hospital was utterly overflowing with patients and care was almost non-existent. More than 6,000 men were crammed into the 800-bed facility. Medics who arrived at Camp Devons at this time were stunned by the scene. Victor Vaughan was one of them. He was a veteran of the Spanish-American Civil War, so he'd seen lots of conflict. And yet this scene stuck with him, even years later. I see hundreds of young, stalwart men in the uniform of their country coming into the wards of the hospital in groups of ten or more. They are placed on the cots until every bed is full, yet others crowd in. The faces soon wear a bluish cast. A distressing cough brings up the blood-stained sputum. In the morning, the dead bodies are stacked about the morgue like cordwood. Such are the gruesome pictures exhibited by the revolving memory cylinders in the brain of an old epidemiologist. That's such a vivid description. It's almost as if I'm there in the room with Vaughan. And of course, at the time, they immediately wanted to know what was killing these otherwise healthy young men. They had an incredible diagnostic ability. This is David Morens, a medical epidemiologist based at the National Institutes of Health in the United States. They also did something that we don't do much anymore, which is they did a large number of autopsies on people who died. Because they had microbiology labs, they did cultures of the bacteria in the lungs. And what these folks saw was a very characteristic picture. A normal lung is pink and aerated and kind of spongy. But when bronchopneumonia starts out, you have the respiratory tree, you know, the internal lining of that involved with influenza, and then the disease, influenza, and bacterial complications spread outward. And the tissue is damaged. There is often inflammatory infiltrate, that is, white blood cells coming in to the tissue and into the alveoli, the air sacs, and sometimes fluid, uh, edema fluid or water coming into the air sacs, which is like drowning. And in addition to that, if people didn't die of that, they often had empyemas, pus collections, between the chest wall and the lungs. And if not that, the empyemas often led to bacteria getting into the blood and septicemia, and they died of sepsis. So once you had the process of bronchopneumonia starting, which would start with a virus, once you got to that point, and there were no antibiotics, of course, it would be very common that the pathology would spread outward to involve the whole lung and it would kill you. 
William Welsh was the leading pathologist in America who'd examined hundreds of cases of pneumonia, but he'd never seen precisely this pattern of lung damage. And apparently when he autopsied one of the victims, he said, this must be some new kind of plague. This was an important moment, not only for Welsh, but for American medicine in general. And it helps explain American historians' sense of ownership of the pandemic. Yes, Welsh's description of this new kind of plague has echoed down the years. For Welsh, one of the leading pathologists in the world, to do an autopsy and look at the lung tissue and think initially that it may be a new disease, that is not a death caused by bacterial pneumonia. This is historian John Barry. His book, The Great Influenza, set the benchmark for recent popular scholarship on the pandemic. Barry was also the one who first floated the theory that the pandemic virus originated in a remote farming community in Haskell County, Kansas. So that's 300 miles west of Camp Funston in Fort Riley. And from Funston, Barry believes the flu spread to other large US Army training camps along the eastern seaboard before being introduced to northern France by American troops crossing on transatlantic carriers. And here's what Barry says about the Kansas origin theory. It does seem very coincidental, if not causal, that you can trace cases back to Haskell. And you can trace by name people who went from Haskell County, Kansas, from families where there was influenza and pneumonia. They traveled to Camp Funston and exactly the incubation period of influenza first cases seem to appear at Camp Funston. In addition, Haskell sits on a migratory bird flyway. So it seemed to me when I was researching the book that that was a reasonable hypothesis to advance as to the site of origin. So many of these features that Barry's describing You also found it tarpaulin in northern France. Lots of soldiers living close to pigs and in an area known for migratory birds. Um, And this was also in place in southwest Kansas. Yes, and certainly the earliest report of the spring wave of what became known as Spanish flu occurred at Camp Funston when a soldier there fell ill on March the 4th, 1918. So that sounds like pretty good evidence, but Professor John Oxford begs to differ. The Americans have captured 1918 and put it in their pocket. It's been a very strange nationalistic feeling. It's as though the rest of the world hardly exists. And you read these wonderful books coming from the United States, and in the most, most recent one, they actually identify some GP who turns out possibly not even to have a medical degree. He's a very nice chap who drives around. He has patients about every 25 miles in, 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 in Kansas, somewhere that's... Haskell you know, County, Kansas. Yes, yeah. OK. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's miles from anywhere. Really is. And that winter of 1918, he seems to have some people die of influenza, but so what? Every winter people die of influenza. The question you have to ask is, were they young people? That's what separated the 1918 infection from any other influenza year. If they're the normal age group, which seems to me they were, I'm not going to take much notice of it. It doesn't look to me like a solid description of an outbreak. What he's saying is he doesn't think that this outbreak, whatever it was, was the pandemic flu. I think this is a good time to look again at this iconic picture, what we've called the primary exhibit for the case for an American origin. And, you know, it's all these men lying around in cots at Camp Funston. 
I don't know. What do you think, Hannah? Have a closer look. Do they look ill to you? Do they look, you know, at the point of death? None of them seem to be exhibiting the symptoms that we've heard in such great detail just now. Some of them are sitting up, some of them are chatting, smiling at the camera. They don't look like they've experienced anything particularly catastrophic. Yeah, now, the other thing I think we should pick up on from what John was talking about is the unusual age profile of many of the victims of the Spanish flu. So we know that two-thirds of those who perished in the pandemic were young adults between the ages of 20 and 40, which is the exact reverse of most flu seasons, where mortality falls most heavily on people aged 60 or over and young children below the age of five. Yes, it's the famous W-shape mortality curve that Spanish flu deaths draw on a graph. You see a sharp peak of deaths in the middle age ranges as opposed to the U-shape curve seen in typical flu seasons. We asked Professor Wendy Barclay from Imperial College London to explain what might account for the high numbers of deaths seen in young adults in 1918. One favourite theory is that this virus was so lethal in that age group of people because it triggered an unusual immunopathology, which people sometimes call the cytokine storm. So the idea is that viruses come into our body, we detect them, and our immune system switches on to try to fight them. And the outcome is set at that point. But sometimes our immune system overreacts to the virus and starts making those chemicals which recruit help from other immune cells in in quantities which are inappropriate. And then you end up with a person whose lungs are not only full of virus but also full of immune cells and somehow those immune cells are just not helping. In fact, they're actually contributing to a sort of devastating pneumonia and, and other symptoms. So if we sort of imagine that this 1918 virus is one of the viruses which comes in, triggers this cytokine storm scenario, and it's actually your own immune system which is contributing to the symptoms that lead to severe disease or even death, the better your immune system does that, the worse your outcome will be. That's a fascinating theory. So almost counterintuitively, the better your immune system was, the worse off you were. Yes. In other words, in 1918, having a strong immune system could have been a handicap. But not everyone agrees with this theory. Is your immune system really so much weaker when you're 18 years old than 28 years old? I just don't think that's true. So this is Dr. Michael Warraby. He's an evolutionary biologist based in Arizona. Now, Warraby has advanced another theory about the unusual mortality pattern seen in 1918. And his theory is almost the reverse of the cytokine storm theory. He thinks the reason young adults were so susceptible isn't because their immune systems were too strong, but because the virus triggered the wrong sort of immune response. The very first time that you see influenza seems to shape your lifelong immunity in really profound ways, and that seemed to be the kind of missing factor in understanding what happened in 1918. So maybe that cohort was uniquely susceptible to dying from the H1N1 virus and other age groups, older folks, younger kids, had exposure as kids and had locked on and imprinted 
to something that was more protective against the 1918 virus. If this idea is correct, and 1918 was an example of the previous pandemic, this Russian flu created a cohort of people who had particularly poor immunity to an H1N1 virus, right at the same time that events in the world transpired to ignite a world war, and who do you then gather to fight your war? It's 20 to 30 year old young men, the exact cohort that is most vulnerable, not just to dying, but probably to transmitting the virus. Now this theory that Mike's talking about has got a lovely name, Original Antigenic Sin. That is a great name. Yeah, I mean, the idea is that the first flu that you encounter sets up your immune response for life. So for instance, in 1918, those aged 28 and under were vulnerable to the Spanish flu, which we know is an H1N1 type virus. Now that may have been because their first exposure had been to the 1890 Russian flu, which we think was an H3 virus. In other words, it had a completely different genetic makeup. Now, the other really intriguing thing that Mike Warraby has found, and this also supports the idea of an American place of origin, and that is that the genes of the 1918 Spanish flu virus most closely relate to flu genes from birds in North America. There is a very strong signal that most of the segments did come probably from birds within a few years of 1918. It does look like that was a North American avian virus. We also found that it looks more like an avian virus mixed and matched with an already circulating human virus of the H1 subtype. So this virus could have been introduced to Europe via American transatlantic troop transports in the spring of 1918. But intriguingly, this is something Michael flagged up that had never really occurred to me before, that it could have reached Europe via another animal that played a huge role in the First World War, namely horses. The British remount service basically bought all of the horses in North America. It's the largest movement of horses that has ever occurred and will ever occur on the face of the planet. You know, millions and millions of horses were transported from North America to the Western Front over, you know, 1914 to 1916. Now, the literature is full of anecdotal reports of horses getting flu-like symptoms at the same time as people and poultry. So based on genetic analysis of the Spanish flu and other flu viruses, Michael Warraby believes that horses could have been the intermediary host in the transfer of the virus from birds to humans. This was in the midst of a remarkably large horse flu outbreak. So this is another possible route for genes moving from one hemisphere to the other. That's really fascinating. So War Horse, the book by Michael Morpurgo, was the first time I'd thought about the role of horses in the First World War. But it's intriguing to think horses may also have been casualties of the Spanish flu. So if the pandemic genes of the Spanish flu originated in North America, that could support John Barry's thesis. Yes, that's right. But the challenge for John Barry is that if Warraby's right, 
It suggests that the flu virus may have been around for a lot longer, uh, several years before 1918. And there's also epidemiological evidence that's come out since John Barry wrote the first edition of The Great Influenza, his best-selling book, to suggest that there were these unusual patterns of mortality in young adults in other parts of the world, including Copenhagen in Northern Europe. Now, that's a long way from Haskell County in Kansas. When you edit my comments, I don't want to sound as if I'm committed to the Haskell hypothesis. John Barry himself appears to be growing lukewarm about his thesis. The analysis based on the rate of mutation of the genome, you know, suggests, it's not conclusive, but it suggests that the virus was around in 1917 and, and possibly earlier than 1917. Of course, at Haskell is January 1918. If the virus was around much before that, then it would eliminate Haskell. You know, because of that, you know, there's new data, therefore... I'll change my position. I suppose, you know, the good news is that you could look at it as uh, the gift that keeps on giving. There's always room for an update, another chapter, a revised version. Well, in fact, you know, (laughs) there is a new edition of the book coming out in a few weeks, I guess, with a new afterword. So John Barry's being forced to reevaluate his position in light of the new evidence that's coming out. Whereas Professor John Oxford is sticking very firmly to his etape theory uh, where it started in northern France. But there's one more origin theory that we haven't yet explored. Yeah, so this is the theory that the Spanish flu may have come from China. And the way it would have got there is through members of the Chinese Labour Corps. Now, these were Chinese labourers who were recruited by the British in northern China, who then were transported to the Western Front via Canada and other routes. This is something that I knew very little about, so it was absolutely fascinating to visit the cemetery at Noyelles-sur-Mer in northern France, where members of the Chinese Labour Corps were buried, not far from the Chinese base camp and hospital that were there. For Chinese visitors who come here today, they're often astounded that this kind of architecture exists in northwestern France. Glyn Priesel from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission was our guide to the cemetery. Here we are in a you know, small corner uh, surrounded by fields and agriculture in northwestern France and here you have a little corner of China. You've got this incredible Chinese in design arch to actually get into the cemetery itself and we're here in the afternoon light and the sun is hitting the warm stone of the arch very, very beautifully and casting shadows. So Glyn, what actually brought these Chinese individuals here in the first place? Well, over the course of 1916, for the Allies, manpower became a real issue. There'd been hugely difficult battles on the Western Front, the Battle of Verdun and the Somme, and also the volunteers had dried up. And so they started to look for alternative sources of manpower. First, it was the French who made an arrangement with the Chinese government to bring indentured labour over. So labour, labourers, workers who'd be paid for their services, brought from China to work on the Western Front. And Britain then followed suit. So they made an arrangement with China at the end of 1916. And over the course of 1917, Chinese workers began to arrive, mainly working behind the lines. So in the docks, the ports, we're very close to the sea here, but also on the railways, digging trenches, all of that really crucial logistical work, without which the army couldn't function, to really take part in the sinews of war, not the fight but all of that stuff which made the fighting possible. Life wasn't that easy for these Chinese workers, was it? No, and I asked Glyn about that. They were very much seen as second-class citizens. Often they were put to work closer 
to the front lines than other labourers. So whereas German prisoners of war were sometimes uh, asked to work, they wouldn't be brought particularly close to the front lines. The Chinese were. So it meant that they were exposed to much more danger. Some Chinese workers were even killed by shelling and by bombing from German aircraft. So it was a dangerous job as well as being a difficult one. But I think what we're left with today is a unique memorial to people who aren't always remembered in the same way as those who did the fighting, but who nevertheless played an important part. What struck me about the Chinese case was that it didn't turn on one report or a couple of reports. You can actually trace things over an extended period of time. Mark Humphreys, a military historian based in Ontario, Canada, has made a close study of the Chinese case. Basically what happened is in November of 1917, an epidemic of what's reported as pneumonic plague breaks out in northern China. And we have to understand that this is a critical time in China during the First World War. So the French and the British governments are both actively recruiting laborers in China to be sent to the Western Front at this period in time. There's large numbers of British personnel who are there. And there are doctors who are also in place in China to monitor for pneumonic plague. There have been an outbreak of plague in 1910, 1911, and there's all these concerns, largely racist in origin, that have to do with the plague, you know, going to be transmitted potentially out of China and to Europe. So within that context, this new disease emerges in, in November of 1917. Doctors are dispatched with the interior of China, and they get all these kind of reports coming from communities in the interior northern part of China, which report large numbers of people dying from pneumonic plague on a daily basis. And they report the disease kind of moving at a, at a rate of um, dozens of kilometres a day from one community to another. So the deadly epidemic that had broken out in northern China in November 1917 was identified as pneumonic plague, like it was called plague in the US army camps. But Mark Humphreys had discovered new evidence to suggest that when the Spanish flu began spreading throughout China in November 1918, a British official later revised his opinion about the earlier outbreak. This time, when doctors go out and they investigate the outbreak of pneumonic plague, they immediately say, this isn't pneumonic plague, it's actually Spanish influenza. And what's interesting then to me as an historian is you have a contemporary example then of a situation in which a disease identified one year as being pneumonic plague, unquestionably, is then a year later with a new context identified as being it's not pneumonic plague, it's Spanish influenza. Mark believes the virus was carried from Asia to Europe by the Chinese labourers. So in all, 100,000 Chinese labourers were shipped to the Western Front by the British. And the way they got there was they sailed across the Pacific to Canada, to Vancouver, and then they were herded onto these closed trains and taken right across Canada in great secrecy to Halifax in Nova Scotia, from where they made that Atlantic crossing to France. And according to official reports found by Mark Humphreys, many of the Chinese labourers were ill at the time of departure. So we actually have cases of boats leaving from this depot in Weihai Way in the middle of this epidemic of what's called pneumonic plague at the time and arriving in Canada. And you, we do again have records of several of these people dying of pneumonia along the way, both in Vancouver as well as on the middle of the Pacific Ocean. On arrival at Noyelles-sur-Mer in France, not far from Atapla, many of the Chinese were hospitalised with respiratory diseases, including the flu. Not only that, but in March 1918, three months before the camp was hit by the first wave of Spanish flu, two of the hospital's pigs died. And guess what? The doctors conducted autopsies on them. When 
they autopsy the pigs, uh, they conclude that the pigs are dying of swine fever. In 1917, 18, 19, it's an inspecific term that you use to describe any essentially unknown disease suffered by these pigs. Why that's significant is that pigs are an intermediary species and that flu can both mutate within pigs, but if people are sick with flu, pigs can actually catch the flu from people. In this case, we actually have this unusual grouping of respiratory diseases with deaths suffered by pigs that are being, you know, um, investigated by people at the time. So did they also conduct autopsies on the Chinese labourers to find out what was killing them? No, amazingly, they were far more concerned about the pigs, which I guess tells you something about racial attitudes towards the Chinese at this time. At noël sur I was particularly struck by a sign outside the cemetery which specified the toll taken by the Spanish flu on these indentured Chinese workers, and this was reflected on their gravestones. When you look in this section, you see the autumn of 1918, October, November. There's a notable spike in deaths around that time. You can see this whole row here, October, October. You see 12th, 15th, 15th, 18th. So I think in microcosm, what you have here is that impact of flu around that time. If we're positing this idea that they may have introduced influenza here, then they would also have had to have interacted with the British and other Commonwealth troops in order to pass on the virus. And there is evidence for that. Absolutely. I mean, the Western Front at that time was a melting pot. People from all over the world coming together in an often very intimate environment. And of course, the Chinese, although they were, they were separated, they were, they were treated differently from, from other soldiers, still came into contact with them. You know, there are many, many British soldiers who write diaries and letters and memoirs talking about their experiences, their encounters with Chinese labourers, maybe as they're passing to and from the front lines. You know, these are people for whom we don't have a huge amount of, of information. Some of these people, we don't even have a record of their names. We just have their, their service number. In almost a unique way, the Chinese Labour Corps are hidden from us. Uh, it makes it much, much harder to, to find the evidence we would need to be categorical in our support for that kind of theory. So we've heard all the evidence now for the Chinese origins theory. So to sum up, I think we should remember that throughout history, plagues have always been blamed on the East, on the Asiatic other. So cholera and plague in the 19th century are classic examples of that. On the other hand, we know from recent histories that many of the bird flus start in China, from where they spread to Hong Kong and other parts of Southeast Asia. So it's not impossible that something similar happened in 1917, that a bird flu could have emerged in northern China and been mistaken for plague. I have to say, though, that I don't think that the epidemiological and the clinical evidence for Humphrey's theory is all that strong. I agree. The case for a Chinese origin theory is largely circumstantial. So that leaves us with Professor John Oxford's theory still standing, that the epidemic started in France, and we explored that in episode three. But questions still stand about the epidemiology there too. We don't yet know for sure that the diseases they were coming across in 1916-1917 were in fact Spanish flu. However, if we've learned anything as disease detectives, it's that science has a way of springing surprises and we may yet find the missing piece of the puzzle. 
Next time, we'll be taking a closer look at the global ramifications of the pandemic. Particularly in countries far removed from the theatre of war. One of the few eyewitnesses of the Spanish flu was this Indian writer who wrote about what it was like to go back to his village and just lose almost everyone in his family. Going Viral is presented by me, Mark Honigsbaum. And me, Hannah Maudsley. Please do subscribe to our series so you don't miss an episode. And we'd love you to rate us too. Get in touch with us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod. Our producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. And the series is supported by the Wellcome Trust. <laughs>